I bet you probably didn't know this, but a, a lifesaver, y'all know what that is there, a lifesaver is actually a summer candy. I didn't know that. But it actually was created to be a summer candy. Uh, Clarence Arthur Crane is the one who I invented, if that's the word for candy, invented this in 1912. He's actually a chocolate maker. And he found that his chocolate sales declined in the summertime. Now, I don't understand that. I'm every bit as committed to chocolate in the summer as I am in the winter. But that was his experience. And so he wanted to create something, I guess, that, that didn't melt, that was kind of cool and refreshing. And so he created the, the peppermint, the wintergreen lifesaver. Those were the first two flavors. Now, when he created it, it was just a, a nickel-sized disc. It didn't have a hole in the middle. While he could create it in his factory, he could not mass-produce it in his factory and so he went down the street and contracted with a pill company and said could you make these for me and they said yeah we can do that and, and when they started making them they had a, a glitch in their machinery and it started pumping out or poking out pills in his little disc and hence we have the shape of the candy now you might say hey you messed up my lifesaver uh, or my little disc go back and fix it but he had an idea because in 1912 that wasn't long after the sinking of the Titanic and what was really starting to become, I don't know if popular is the right word, but lifesavers, life preservers, these little circular life preservers were, were coming up everywhere from that. And all of a sudden he thought, hey, this might work. And it took off. And here we are 85 years later, still eating them. And there is all the history you ever wanted about lifesavers and didn't really ever care to have again, probably. Wouldn't it be great, though? I mean, look at it says right there. This is a lifesaver. Wouldn't that be cool if that's what it did? If it actually saved lives? I mean, anything you needed to be saved from in life, you just pop one of these things in your mouth and you're you're good to go. That problem is gone. Or, or what if I walked in here one day and I mean, I've got a whole bag of these things and I could see everything in here that everybody needs to be saved from. You know, it's written above your head or something. Oh, my gosh. No, but it's written above your head. And, and I could just give you one of these and, and you'd be saved from your problem. But what if I didn't give them to you? Well, what, what if I held on to them? I mean, you know, if I throw them out there, it might hit somebody in the head and you just sue me anyway. Or, or, or if I throw them out there to you, some of you say, I'm just butting in. No, I, I, you know, I'm going I'm to keep this to myself. It was a gift to me anyway. I'm just going to hold on to these for myself. What would you think of somebody that, that had something that could rescue you, that could save you from what you're in? And they held on to it. They said, no, 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 this is, this is mine. We learned last week that when God blesses us, He never intends for that blessing to stop with us. And we have been blessed. We've been blessed with the life Savior, Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, who has come to reconcile us, to bring us back into friendship with God, back into friendship with each other. We have been blessed. And we saw last week that God is taking all of these people that He has blessed, you remember, and He's building out of them a temple, a sanctuary of praise. You probably, I hope, have seen... This is our logo uh, for our study of Ephesians. I hope it's starting to make sense why that's the logo for this study. But when you look at that and, and you see all those different kinds of people, and you realize none of those people up there are ever going to call each other and say, hey, you want to go bowling on Friday? 
I mean, they, they just don't look like they would go together. But you know what? They do have one great thing in common. They hold on to the same lifesaver. And as, and as God brings them together, He is going to build a house of praise. Not of bricks and sticks, but of people. Of people. And what Paul's going to show us today in Ephesians chapter 3, is, or what he's going to do, is he's going to pray for these people. Because you know what? They're not alike. They're all a part of different subgroups and, and different nationalities and, and races. And man left to himself, those races, those nationalities, these little subgroups, they don't always get along. But God's going to bring them together. And as he does, Paul prays, hey, Lord, I pray these people really love each other. That they really come together and they let that common bond unite them. Because what we learn is it is wholly inconsistent to receive, to enjoy the lifesaver, while at the same time harboring bitterness, harboring prejudice towards others who hold on to the same lifesaver. Can't do that. We have to get along. So let's see how Paul prays for us. Would you turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to begin in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, I hope you'll grab one there in the pew in front of you and read along with us. Keep it open. We're going to work all the way through it. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. It says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, you have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that, that He gave to me for you, the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have briefly written above. He's referring to what we looked at last week in chapter 2, 11 to 22. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight about the mystery of the Messiah. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners... Of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me the least of all the saints to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of the Messiah and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to the purpose of the ages which He made in the Messiah, Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness, access, and confidence through faith in Him. So then, I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are for your glory. Now, if you heard what I said just a moment ago, you should be thinking to yourself right now, that didn't sound like a prayer. I, I thought he said Paul was going to pray for us. I don't see, I don't even see the word prayer anywhere in there. Well, that's because the prayer never happened. 
It was supposed to happen. Paul started for it to happen, but, but then he ran off. He, he digressed. And today we come to the fourth of our eight very long sentences. You remember weeks ago me telling you there's going to be eight real long sentences in the book of Ephesians. In verse 2 to verse 13, and as I've told you before, you look down in your English translation and you'll see several periods. But in the Greek language, 2 to 13 is one long sentence, 189 words of Paul before he starts to pray, taking off. And you can see there, he interrupts himself. He, he starts and then he says, you, you have heard, haven't you? And, and he goes back to this idea of Jew and Gentile becoming one of all the peoples on the earth under Christ, in Christ, becoming one. And it's like he says, you know, I got, I got to go back to that. I mean, you, you do know where I got that idea from, don't you? You do know why I've given my life to telling you this. As a matter of fact, he expresses the high sense of responsibility that he feels. He starts off here. He says, man, I'm a prisoner on, on in Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I'm a prisoner for this message. He doesn't say that. So we'll go, oh, wow, man, that's awesome. He doesn't say, oh, that's too bad for Paul. He's not looking to elicit any kind of response towards him. He is communicating the sense of responsibility he has to communicate this message. And he starts off here by saying, I'm an administrator. I, I administrate. Let me show you what he administrates here. I dropped it in my pocket. I administrate the handing out of lifesavers. I, I manage. I put together the handing out in my own life, handing it out, bringing others together, making them partners in handing out the life saving news of Jesus Christ. Now, what we have in Ephesians three is kind of a theological explanation of what he's talking about. I want you to turn with me to Acts where we see where this practically happened. Look at Acts. You're in Ephesians. You'll go back to the left. Galatians, Corinthians. That's where our kids were yesterday in Corinth. Uh, past Corinthians, Romans. You'll get to the end of Acts. Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. Look at verse 9. Acts 26. Verse 9. Here's where you're going to learn where Paul got this message and, and, what, and his calling to it. Acts 26, verse 9. He says, In fact, I myself supposed it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. You remember that before Paul became a Christian, he was a, a zealous passionate hater of Jesus Christ, hater of the church, and would do anything to stop it. And that's what he's referring here to in verse 9. Verse 10, this I actually did in Jerusalem. And I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priest. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. You might remember Paul is the one who had authority over the first Christian that was killed because he was a Christian. That was Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Paul was the one that was over that. Uh, verse uh, middle of there. That when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In all the synagogues, I often tried to make them blaspheme by punishing them. What he's saying there is I tortured. I tortured believers. Being greatly enraged at them, I even pursued them to foreign cities. 
Under these circumstances, I was traveling to Damascus with the authority and the commission from the chief priests. At midday, while on the road, O king, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those traveling with me. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me in the Hebrew language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. But I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you, that's that, you're an administrator, I'm an administrator, I'm a manager, this is where it happened, to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of these things you have seen and of the things in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from the people and from the Gentiles, the debt is the Gentiles, to whom I now send you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision. You see there the responsibility he has to take what God gave him. And he says, God gave me the message of telling people you can come to God. Yes, even you Gentiles, even people from other nations, you can come to God. We all have access to God now from every from every tribe, from every nation, from every people, from every tongue. We all through God have access to Jesus Christ. Now, you know what? To those of us who who've grown up in the church, to those of us. Who, who grew up reading the Bible, that's not earth-shattering we, news. We, we know that Jesus is for everybody. We've got kids in Greece today saying what? Hey, you can have access to God. You don't have to be a part of a certain nation. You don't have to be a part of a certain race. You, you don't go through, through meeting a certain set of rules. God already knows you can't keep the rules. He's already paid the penalty for you not keeping the rules. He's already fulfilled the rules for you. They carry that message that there is peace in Jesus to all nations. Now, while that's not earth-shattering news to us... It was earth-shattering news right here. That, that phrase right there where God is telling him, you're going to go to the Gentiles and tell them they can come to Yahweh. They have access to the Jews' God. That was earth-shattering. It was news that actually put Paul in prison. And, and he tells us here, back in Ephesians 3, he says that, that he was administrator, he was a, a, a servant to this mystery. Now, that word mystery, we, we've already heard that before. It appears six times in the book of Ephesians. It's the most of any New Testament book that this word shows up. And you remember me telling you about that word. Mystery doesn't mean in the Greek what it means in the English. In the English, if we say something's a mystery, that means it's, it's clouded. It's, it's veiled. We can't quite figure it out. We've got we to gotta piece it together. In the Greek language, a mystery is something that is known. I said, well, what's the mystery? Well, it's only known because God revealed it. We would have never known this had God not told us that He was bringing Jew and Gentile together. In Ephesians 1.9, Paul talks about the mystery being that, that God is wrapping everything up. All, all of history, all of humanity, all of your life is going to be summed up. It's going to be evaluated in and through and against Jesus Christ. Well, we wouldn't have known that. There's no amount of human intelligence, no amount of human research that is going to discover this. The only reason we know that is because God revealed it to us. 
He has revealed this truth. And Paul says, I am a servant to this truth. And he says, you know what? Like it says there, this was not made known to peoples in other generations. He's saying that now the reason, don't, don't be caught off guard. Uh, the, the reason that, that Jews and Gentiles are together is one, that's not something you missed out on. That, that's not something you just weren't smart enough to figure out. No, we didn't know this in other generations. And I think here probably he's referring to anything prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which clearly pointed to him being the Messiah, to being the Son of God. But prior to that, we wouldn't have known God is wrapping up everything in Jesus. We wouldn't have known that Jew and Gentiles can be one. And then he says here, he says, and all of this has been, keep losing my spot. He says, all of this is being revealed. And look at that to his holy apostles and prophets. Notice that words. Both of those words are plural. When God reveals truth, it's never just to one person. One person is never the sole possessor of truth. If it's God's truth, he is revealing it over and over and over. You know, that's a real important lesson when we think about cults. Cults are made up of a leader who is the sole possessor of truth. Nobody else would have ever known that without them telling it. See, Paul is saying here, I'm not the sole possessor of this truth. This idea about Jew and Gentile coming together is not just from me. God has revealed it to holy prophets, plural, and apostles, plural. There is a multiplicity of God's revelation. You take somebody like uh, the Mormons leader, Joseph Smith. He alone held the secret glasses to read this secret Bible. Nobody ever saw the glasses. Nobody ever saw the written word that he said this angel gave to him. Only he was the possessor of that. That's not how God works. When God reveals himself, he does it over and over and over so that there can be confirmation. And what is true in protecting from, from false religions and cults is also true in our personal lives. Man, if I'm looking for God's leadership, if I'm looking for God's will and direction, when I sense that, I ought to be able to back it up. I ought to be able to go to Scripture and see that, that what God is leading me or where I feel like God is taking me, that I can confirm it with Scripture. It in no way contradicts Scripture. If it's God's leading, I'm going to be able to see that principle. I'm going to be able to see that leadership in Scripture. I should be able to share that with other believers. And I would qualify that. I should be able to share that with other godly, mature, spiritual believers. And I should be able to hear confirmation that they sense that that's God's leading. And that sounds right to them. God's not going to tell something that's just one person and they alone have that. If you alone are the possessor of that truth, you have not heard from God. You ate a bad tamale or something, but you have not heard from God if you're the sole possessor of that truth. And so Paul says, I'm not the sole possessor of this. This is what God has been revealing to his prophets and apostles, to you Gentiles. And now, by this revelation, by the work of Jesus Christ, you Gentiles are now, look what he says here, your partners. Your partners with us. Your partners with me in proclaiming this message. And I think, now, what, what, what do you, what, now wait a minute, now wait a minute. What are you talking about me being a, a partner with you? What, what am I partnering in doing? And so Paul begins to describe his life a little bit here in verse 7. And he says, you know what? I was made a servant of the gospel. I was made a, a, a servant of this message. That word servant there is the Greek word diakonos. We get our word deacon 
from that. There's two words for servant. There's diakonos and there's doulos. Doulos is the servant that is the position in life, a slave. And Paul uses that word of himself too in Romans 1.1. He says, I am a doulos, I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He owns me. My minutes are His minutes. My, my life is His life. My purposes are His purposes. I belong to Him. But here he says, I am a diakonos, I am a servant to this message. One was a life position. This one is an activity. The activity of my life, the character of my life is to serve this handing out, to serve the the giving out of these lifesavers, of this message. And that is what you're a partner with me in. We were partners with Paul in being a recipient of God's blessings. Right? We, we partnered with Him. We're holding on to the same lifesaver that He is. Well, just as we partnered with Him in that, we ought to be partnering with Him in handing that message out. Now, now look and think about what God does here in our lives. We go from being a sinner to being a recipient to being a partner. Man, that is just the work and the power of God. That is the the wisdom of God. We could have never done that for ourselves. We could have never figured that out. To go from being a sinner against God, my life is against God, to now I'm partnering with God. That you know, if you think about, it, that's even better than being a recipient. A partner is a a co-equal, a co-heir. I'm up in a new status now. I'm a partner in this company. Now, some of us might say, "Well, you know what? I, I that's that's not me." I mean, God couldn't be talking about me here. I've made such a, a mess of life. I'm, I'm unworthy to be something like that. And Paul says no, because he knows how we think. He says, no, listen, I'm, I'm the least of all saints. Oh, yeah, Paul. Oh, yeah, you're really low on the uh, totem pole there, Paul. Yeah, you're way down, probably below me. I mean, it kind of sounds like false humility, doesn't it? No, it's not false humility. We just read about why Paul said he was the least of all saints, didn't we? He said, you think you're worse than me? You think you're more unworthy than me to be made a partner in this? I used to torture people that God was bringing through this process. I imprisoned people who were in this process. I oversaw people being murdered because God was doing this in their lives. There is nobody in this this group. There's nobody in this partnership that's lower than I am. That's what the grace of God can do. Just as God's grace lifted Paul up out of that, God's grace can lift you up out of that. And He can move you through this process of being a sinner to being a recipient to now being a partner with God. That's what God wants to do in your life. You remember that phrase we looked at last week, being far away from God? Man, I go from being far away from God to to, to belonging to God, to being blessed by God, to now I'm a partner with God in bringing others To the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that is awesome. That is awesome that God does that. Now, some of you might say, well, you know what? Why? Why why does God do that? Why does He love sinners? Why, Why does He move people through this process? Well, verse 10 answers that question for us. It says, this is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may be made known... I lost my spot. There it is. Through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. What in the world does that mean? This is all happening, if I understand this correctly, so that God can teach something, so that God can 
illustrate his wisdom to rulers and authorities in the heavens. Well, well, who are the rulers and authorities in the heavens? Well, most often when we see that phrase linked with heaven, we're talking about angels. And so now comes the question, well, what kind of angels are we talking about? Who, what kind of angels does God need to teach? You wouldn't think he needs to teach the good angels. I mean, they would, you'd think they would already know this. And we certainly know there's good angels in heaven. Gosh, in Ephesians 1, we see heaven is the, the source of our blessings in Christ. Heaven is where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Heaven is where we have, remember that sermon? We have a spot in heaven. So heaven's filled with good things. But the scripture also refers to the heavenly realms. And when we get to Ephesians 6, we're going to see rulers and authorities in the heavens. And they're the demonic forces. So who's God teaching here? Is he teaching good angels or is he teaching bad angels? I'll tell you what I believe. I believe he's teaching both. God is always schooling the angels. He's always teaching. I want to show you. I want you to understand. I want you to relate with my wisdom and how I move and work in this world. How I move these sinners from this process where they end up being partners with me. That's why you might scratch their head and say, no, wait a minute. Are you saying my whole life is nothing more than some kind of illustration to teach angels? This doesn't seem very important. No, verse 11 says this whole process of teaching the angels is just a part of God's purpose in which you end up having access to God. Access to God. Folks, that's a miracle. You and I having, and look at the words there. What kind of access? Bold access. Confident access to God. You know why that's a miracle? Because as sinners outside of Christ, we explode in the presence of God. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean that literally. We come undone in the presence of God. Physically, emotionally, mentally, we cannot handle that. We cannot do that. We die. But God made a way possible for us to come into His presence, to have access. We have now access in Jesus Christ. Man, folks, that, that's incredible and bold. You know what that word bold means? It means to stand erect. To stand erect before God. You know what? It's right outside of Christ to be afraid of dying. It's right to be afraid of going to meet God and going to your judgment. There's a reason that that's very natural for our soul to be afraid of that idea and to be afraid of that event. We go in trembling. We go in humbled and humiliated. We go in shameful and not wanting to look up. But in Christ, I can now stand erect. Not proud of myself. You're like, when I stand here erect, you think, oh, he's bowing up. He's proud of something he is or he's proud of something he's done. No, I'm not bowing up in God because I'm proud of who I am or what I've done. I'm proud of who Christ Jesus is and I'm proud of, proud of what Christ Jesus has done for me. Christ gives me that confident access to God. That is awesome. I mean, there ought to be nothing more significant. If I really comprehend that, if I really understand that, there shouldn't be anything more significant in my life. Man, I'll tell you something. There ought to be no more significant story in my mouth. No more significant story in my heart than telling the story of what Jesus Christ has done for me and what He can do for those that I'm talking to, what He can do for those that I'm relating with. But that's not always the case, is it? 
No, sometimes there's a lot of stories in our heart and a lot of stories in our mouth that become more important. One of the reasons is is because we're not maybe as excited and as proud of this as Paul is. Why? Well, you know, when we start talking about Jesus in some places, they make fun of you. They reject you. They, they ostracize you. You know, you're, you're made to look stupid. You're made to look backward. You're made to look like some kind of fanatic. And doing that's kind of discouraging, isn't it? As a matter of fact, look at how Paul ends this in verse 13. Look at how Paul ends this. He says, so then I ask you not to be discouraged. It's kind of a strange ending if you think about it, isn't it? Remember, this is one sentence. I don't say that just for trivia. This is one sentence. It's one idea. This is not Paul going into a... Well, no, now that I'm done teaching about that... You know, I've heard a lot of y'all are very concerned about my status of being in jail and everything. Listen, don't be worried about... It's not what he's saying. How does he end this whole thought by saying, Don't be discouraged by me being in jail. What's he doing here? He knows where we are. He knows on one hand we may say, I'm not worthy of that. Oh no, you don't get any lower in life than I was. And on another hand, we may say, I'm scared of that. I'm scared of going out into the world and and proclaiming Christ and and proclaiming the story of Jesus and and what we can can have in Him. I'm scared of that. I'm discouraged. Wait, my partner got jailed. (laughs) My partner in this whole thing got put in prison. I don't want to do this. Paul says, no, no. Don't be discouraged. This is your glory. Your glory, your greatest opportunity in this life, your greatest opportunity in this world is to partner. It's to partner with God. It's to partner with Jesus. It's to partner with Paul, with the saints, the prophets, the apostles, to to partner with all of them in proclaiming this great story that in Jesus Christ there is peace. In Jesus Christ, there is friendship with God. You know, there's a lot of ways to partner with God. A lot of different ways. And and I think the reason there's a lot of different ways is there are a lot of different personalities. You know, we're not all Billy Graham. We're not all that clear of a, a communicator and that all bold of a communicator. But, you know, we're not all debaters. We're not all super intelligent. This is, you know, we look for people to confront. We look for people to get into a long argument with. No, that's, that's not all of our personalities. That's not all of our abilities. We're all different. And God's not trying to make us all one kind of person. So there's all kinds of ways to being a partner. You know, one way that every single believer can partner, no matter what your personality, what your strengths are, prayer. Man, right now, there, there is 22 of our family that are in Greece. But they're not there alone. Man, we partner with them in that every day I'm praying. I'm praying. They're over there on behalf of me, on behalf of our family, on behalf of God's call on this family's life to go. And I partner with whatever they're going to be doing tomorrow. I'm a part of that in that I'm praying. I'm praying God's power and presence flows through their life. I'm praying people see Jesus Christ on their face. I'm praying God opens up opportunities. As I pray, I'm partnering with Paul. I'm partnering with those youth. I'm a part of that. Another way that everybody can partner is by giving. 
When we give, we're partnering in the gospel going forth. Many of you gave so that those youth are over there in Greece right now. We're all a part of that. We're partnering. And we ought to be looking for how many different places I can effectively and faithfully partner. We give. You give to this church. And, and this church carries out the gospel. You give to the ministries of this church. You know, I try to remind you of this periodically. Nine percent of what you give to this church goes to the cooperative program of the Southern Baptists. And half of that money goes to the International Mission Board. And 25% of it goes to the North American Mission Board. Meaning every time you put money in the plate, 9% of that is partnering with two agencies that have one sole purpose. And that is to carry the gospel around this country and around this world. Every time we give, we're partnering. That's something everybody can do. And there's all kinds of ways we partner in life. We think, oh no, you know, partnering means I go into somebody's face and I give them this long, detailed account of things I've memorized. I'm ready to answer every single question. You know what? You may partner with God just by simply telling somebody what Jesus Christ means to you. Yeah, you may not have any memorized verses. You may not have any points. You may not be ready to answer any questions, but you can tell somebody what Jesus means to you. You may, you may just hand them a track. Man, you know, I would have read this and it, it really meant a lot to me in understanding this something, this thing that's become very important in my life. Why don't you read it and tell me what you think about it? That may be the how you partner. You, you may partner just by inviting somebody to church. Inviting them to join you to a Bible fellowship class where what happens? The gospel's given out. Your way of partnering, your way of serving the gospel may be doing these kinds of things, but make no mistake... You are a partner. We are all to partner. Man, think about this. No access. No chance to have access to God. To having confident, bold access. To becoming a partner that tells the world. Doesn't matter what their race, their nationality, doesn't matter where how they've messed up, you can tell them there's peace in Jesus. You can have access to God. That's the power and wisdom of God in our lives. That's God's blessing. We can't sit on it. We've been called to serve it. Boy, I sure hope my life this week is a great illustration as God teaches those angels let's pray father thank you for doing in my life and in the lives of so many people in this room what we could have never figured out what we could have never done on our own oh to go from being a sinner to a recipient to a partner in the kingdom of god a partner in the work and the things of god man i couldn't do that for myself But you did it. You did it. And I thank you, God. And Father, I pray I will be faithful to pick up this partnership you have bestowed on me. God, I pray for my life and and for the lives of everybody in this room that we would have the same burden on our lives that Paul had. That he was willing to go to jail to make this news known. Oh, Lord, we may do it in all different kinds of ways, but God, may we do it. May we be partners in handing out the life Savior.
It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray this. Amen. Well, if you don't know this morning that you have access to God, I tell you something, outside of Him, you should be afraid. But there is a way to come into Jesus Christ and have access to God. If you don't know this morning that you're in Christ and that you have that access, in a moment we're going to stand and sing. We have a time of invitation. I would say we are inviting you. We're not. Jesus Christ is inviting you. He's inviting you by faith to step out of your seat there and come down these aisles. And by faith, take one of these pastors by the hand and say, I want to know about having a relationship with God. I want to know about how to have access to Him. And let us pray with you for a moment and talk with you about how you can have that relationship. Let me tell you something. If you know right now that you don't have it, you don't know that because of how smart you are. You know that because God's speaking to you right now. That's the confirmation of Scripture. And if you know that, God's calling you to come forward. If you know today that that you need to be a part of a church family, you're not connected to one right now, and you sense God is leading you to become a part of this church family, this time and this moment is also for you. You can come forward and, and come into the membership and the life of this church. We invite you in this moment to take advantage of that. Do you need Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Do you need to belong to a church family? As we stand and as we sing, this time is...